Today on the EM Docs podcast, we have something a little different. We're going to cover a couple of the EM at 3 a.m. posts. And to help us, we have the rock star Rachel Bridwell, who's a current chief resident of emergency medicine in San Antonio, Texas. Rachel's posts cover a very similar patient, a younger male with severe blunt lower extremity trauma. Let's start with a tibial plateau fracture. Rachel, how common are these, and who should we consider the diagnosis in? So first to talk about epidemiology and patient scenarios, these people who are coming in with exquisite knee pain kind of fall into one of two categories. There's the men under 50 with high energy mechanisms. So these are individuals who have gotten into car accidents or other high-speed injuries. And then the other category is older women over the age of 70 with low mechanism injuries. So these are people who politely fall down. These patients typically present with severe pain, refusing to bear weight on the affected extremity, and they may have an effusion, open soft tissue injury, ligament injury, and neurovascular deficits. This post covers a classification system, but we're not going to go into detail into this because you won't remember it. Just remember that the more severe the injury or the more bone and articular surface involved, the more intervention needed. Please go to the post for more on this classification system. What about diagnostic imaging? Can we just rely on the x-ray or do we need something more? So x-ray is a great place to start, but unfortunately the sensitivity for fracture, even with a four view, is only about 85%. Much like a good ER doc, I go then straight to CT with a much better sensitivity and specificity at about 98% each. It can show also other items such as site placement, bony fragments, and lipohemarthrosis. These are some important considerations for imaging, especially when it comes to CT. What are some of the complications that can occur? Everyone remembers the risk of compartment syndrome, but how common is this? And there have to be others. So we all do focus on compartment syndrome because it's limb-threatening, but there are others. So compartment syndrome happens in 11% of cases, which is not insignificant. It also tends to occur in folks with fibular fractures, longer fractures, and a combined plateau shaft fracture. And 30% of these will also experience fibular head fractures, so then we also worry about the perineal nerve injuries and the foot drop. We've covered presentation, diagnosis, and complications, but what about management? This is always a tough question in orthopedic complaints. Who needs the OR, and who just needs a splint? Your two immobilization options are either long leg LNU versus knee immobilizer, and based on patterns and discussing with orthopedics, both are okay. I've seen both, and there's really no rhyme or reason to it. However, immediate surgical management is where we as ER docs have to have a higher index of suspicion. So severely depressed fractures, those with compartment syndrome, any neurovascular compromise and open fractures need the OR emergently. All right, let's move to the next injury, knee dislocation. I found these to be either really subtle or grossly apparent in patients with severe trauma. What are the types of knee dislocations, and who's at risk? So similarly to the plateau fractures, there are the two bimodal distributions. So we once again have high energy mechanisms, especially those with MVCs, where their knee gets pushed into the dashboard and their tibia gets displaced. The scarier complication or the scarier group in this respect is the low energy folks. So it's obese individuals mostly stepping off a curve. And obesity is an independent risk factor for tibiofemoral dislocation. And nearly 50% of these people occur with a BMI greater than 40. This is a big point. Many knee dislocations spontaneously reduce prior to patient presentation to the ED, making this even more difficult to diagnose. But before we get ahead of ourselves, what are we concerned with when it comes to knee dislocations? So we can break this down into three categories. We worry about the anatomy, so that uncovers ligaments, nerve, and vascular injury. 
So in order to completely dislocate your tibia from your femur, you have to disrupt your ACL, your PCL, your MCL, and your LCL. So those are the grossly unstable ligaments that we're worried about. The other thing we get very concerned about is the popliteal artery, which is tethered in the posterior aspect of the fossa, and has a really high risk of injury, which is estimated to be about 40% of patients with knee dislocations. Similarly, running right around the fibular neck is the perineal nerve, which has a pretty high risk of damage as well, and you look for a foot drop on these folks. That's right, we're looking for nerve and vascular injuries in these patients. If we have a patient with suspected knee dislocation, like we talked about, many will have spontaneously reduced their knee. What should we look for on exam? First, we always start as EM physicians with the ABC. So if these are big, high-energy traumas, then we do what we do best. Uh, when it comes to the knee, it does help if you put the knee in 20 degrees of flexion by putting a towel or something under the knee. It, it helps with the exam. Um, so the first thing I would do is check for multi-directional instability. Even if it's spontaneously reduced, having the knee be able to basically fill up space in all 360 degrees is a pretty good tip-off that this may have spontaneously reduced. Uh, if you have a contralateral side that's uninjured, it's a helpful check in some of these more obese folks. And especially in these, if you have them extended out and you lift by the heel, you can look for hyperextension of that knee, as 50% of these patients will reduce spontaneously prior to arrival. So if you do the heel lift and you see one knee tend to hyperextend more than the other, that may be a tip-off for you. The other things we do immediately is check for hard signs. So we're looking for pulse deficits, distal ischemia, and rapidly expanding hematoma, which once again can be challenging in more obese folks. And then you're checking L4 through S1 nerves, especially looking for perineal foot drop. When it comes to the vascular exam, what are your thoughts on the ABI? Well, I try to play nicely with surgery, so I'll always do them for them. But so an ABI of greater than 0.9 has 100% accuracy in excluding vascular injury. And an ABI of less than 0.9 has 100% sensitivity and specificity indicating vascular injury. However, in folks with more calcific vessels, this becomes more challenging. I'll be honest, I'm probably going to go straight for a CT with contrast if I think a knee dislocation was present. But this is going to depend on your institution, orthopedic, or vascular surgeon preference. When it comes to the ABI for diagnosis of vascular injury in patients with knee dislocation, you do have to be kind of careful because many of the studies looking at this included patients who were already admitted who were receiving repeat ABIs. This doesn't really reflect what we do in the emergency department. And that brings us to imaging. What roles do x-ray and CT play? So you can start with x-rays as they can show you dislocation and other secondary osteochondral defects because 53% of these fractures have concomitant dislocations. For CT, the popliteal injury will be similar to compartment syndrome, but it doesn't improve with fasciotomy. So if you're doing a fasciotomy for a popliteal injury, it's probably not going well. A lot of these folks will have minimal tears, but not all of them require operative repair. A lot of these people will require anticoagulation, though, as a result of this interval tear. Let's say we have a knee dislocation on exam, maybe with three ligaments ruptured and a spontaneously reduced knee, or even worse, the knee is still dislocated. What's our management? So if the knee is still dislocated, the primary goal, if nothing else life-threatening is occurring, is to immediately reduce it, as if the knee is dislocated for greater than eight hours, it has an increased rate of amputation. So the biggest thing is to apply longitudinal traction to the tibia, and if you look at the post, there's very specific ways to get each different type of dislocation for reduction. And then afterwards, always check pulses and ABI. For disposition and complications, definitely consult vascular surgery or orthopedics, depending on your hospital. So an ABI of less than 0.9, uh, I would recommend an urgent arteriography and then plan for the operating room. Whereas if your ABI is greater than 0.9, you could admit for serial ABIs and compartment checks, but I would still strongly consider CT and geography. Rachel, thanks for doing what you do. 
and I know you're busy, so I won't take up any more of your time. Thanks for speaking with us today, and I'm sure we'll have you back for more. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, and stay tuned for our next episode. Feel free to comment on our site and let us know if you have any feedback. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.